We have basically one announcement here. Somebody gave me this card. I don't know anything about it other than it sounds interesting and um, uh, might be something to check into. But apparently there is someone who has a, I know this sounds redundant, somebody's going to accuse me of a tautology here, a portable tabernacle. Since tabernacle's supposed to be portable, that's a redundancy. Somebody has a portable tabernacle, and apparently they travel around the country going to different churches that invite them, and they set up this tabernacle, and everything is supposed to be in proper space. Those of you who've been to Israel with me, there was a uh, uh, such a, a tabernacle in Israel, and when we were there, it was no longer, it was down there by the Pillars of Solomon. You know, we stopped there on the way up from a lot, and it wasn't there anymore. But this is going to be at the First Colony Church of Christ in Sugarland, Texas, from Friday, June the 24th until Monday, July the 4th. So we'll find out more, more about that, but that might be something uh, interesting to go see. And if you have kids or grandkids, that might be something interesting to uh, take them to uh, sort of a show-and-tell type of thing. Let me see there. It seems to me there was, was there another announcement of some? some that's right. We need volunteers to teach in prep school. And also there's a, a couple of us who are working on a night to honor Israel that will be held at, uh, it's a put on by Christians. It will be held at Beth Yashern on Sunday night, November the 27th. So you might want to put that on your calendar. Oh, I know what it was, and I don't see it up here. Jeff came up to me the other day to, uh, he was supposed to write out a an announcement. Did you see anything in terms of announcements, Sandy, on uh, having to do with Camp Arete this summer? That I think they need some help, but I'm not sure what the announcement was. I just, he started to tell it to me and, my memory is about that long, so I told him to write it out and put it here. So I'll hopefully find out about that by Thursday. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come to study your word this evening, we're reminded that you have a plan and a purpose for your creation, that you did not create things in vain or in or void, 
but you had a plan and a purpose that you created man a little lower than the angels with a ultimate goal of elevating them above the angels and eventually this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will rule and reign with him in the future messianic kingdom. Father, it's so important to understand this whole concept of the kingdom and of your reign over the earth. And it's important to understand what the Bible teaches, what the Bible doesn't teach, and to help us to better understand the implications of this extremely important idea of the kingdom as we study your word and as we read both the Old and New Testament. Help us to understand these things a little more clearly tonight in our study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we started on the kingdom because this idea of the kingdom runs all the way through Acts. And there are a lot of different things associated with it. And as I pointed out last time, this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is a subject or topic about which there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of differences of opinion even among dispensationalists, but when you get beyond the uh, arena of dispensationalists into just the arena of pre-mills, there's even more discussion and confusion. And then when you get beyond that circle, well, it's just anybody's guess as to what you're going to run into. This afternoon, I, or actually this morning, I spent a lot of time reading through a lot of different material on the kingdom of God as it is related to what was known as the social gospel. In the late 19th century uh, liberal Protestant theologian by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch is considered the father of American, the American social gospel movement and the connection between understanding the social gospel, how it viewed the kingdom of God not as something future where a Messiah would return to the earth and establish a literal kingdom on the earth, but to understand the kingdom of God as something that man was supposed to bring into existence uh, through social and political legislation. It's very, imp it's very important to understand this and to see this as an underpinning of American culture and American thought because it was very much influenced by the uh, rise of socialism and Marxism in the mid-19th century. Communist Manifesto was written by Marx and Engels in 1848, two years after Texas... Uh, became a state. You had the writing of the Communist Manifesto 11 years before Darwin wrote Origin of Species. And these two works had a cross-pollinization effect in the thinking of, of the Western world. Then you had people like August Comte and his views on sociology came along, uh, intersected with that. And so it was the idea of the church was changing because of the influence of uh, what was known as, uh, as 19th century Protestant liberalism, which had as its foundation a rejection of the fact that man is, is basically depraved. Man is a sinner. In um, mo uh, modern thought coming out of the Enlightenment, man is basically good. If man is basically good, then society is basically good. Man is improvable and perfectible. And so society is improvable and perfectible. And those nasty little evangelical people who came out of the Reformation, they just believe that the solution is salvation. They believe that everybody needs to get right with God before they can get right with man. 
and, and we're just far beyond that now. We're so much smarter than that coming out. And in fact, we don't even think we need a God. That's basically the 19th century. And we're bearing the fruits of that in uh, modern times. We have all the wonderful uh, modern uh, developments in, in destructive warfare, uh, totalitarianism, uh, the Holocaust, all of these wonderful things were brought to you by Darwin, Marx, and uh, August Comte. So uh, you can just thank them for the much of what we have uh, going on today. And this idea of the social gospel just really inserted itself into evang- uh, non- non-evangelical or liberal Protestant theology in the early 19th century. And it was interesting as I was searching through my collection of theological journals in um, in my Lagos program, I was impressed with how much was written about this and how much of the social gospel was critiqued and the issue, uh, their view of the kingdom was critiqued by conservative, not necessarily dispensationalists, but by conservative uh, Bible-believing uh, fundamentalist evangelicals in the early 19th century it just seemed like there were numerous articles written in the theological journals countering this up through the 19, 1960s. Not so much after that, but really great stuff that was uh, that was written uh, prior to uh, the midpoint of the 20th century. Things began to change after that as evangelicalism began to be more and more influenced by some of the thinking that was uh, that undergirded uh, this kind of thinking about society and everything today we have uh, some evangelicals who are very liberal and have this high view of man and low view of sin and that the role of the church and the role of man is to improve society bring in a utopic state and all of these other things which have nothing to do with the Bible all because they don't understand the kingdom in fact this is one reason why Marxism has been said to be a Christian heresy is because it subverts this kingdom utopic idea and completely reinvents it within a non-Christian, non-Christ-oriented future kingdom. And I'll come back probably uh, in the next lesson or two and just bring in some little things about that that will uh, help you see where this goes. Bad ideas have bad consequences. Good ideas have good consequences, and ideas are communicated with words. And so if we don't pay attention to the words and to the meanings of those words and how those words were originally used in context and how they are used in the Bible, and uh, if we change that meaning, then we change the ideas from good ideas to bad ideas, and we end up with a lot of bad application and it has very negative impact and negative uh, consequence on the church, on society, on all kinds of things. So these ideas, while they may seem somewhat abstract and um, difficult to get a hold of for some people, they are extremely important. What in the world does the Bible mean by the kingdom? In fact, I had an interchange with uh, one uh, man, scholar, doctorate from Dallas Seminary this last week, who's been doing a lot of work and study as he's trying to come to grips with some of the things that are said in Scripture about the kingdom. 
And in a response to me, he said that he said some things about the kingdom of heaven, and it was obvious, and I would know he would do this because of when he came out of Dallas Seminary, he was trying to draw a distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And we'll get into that a little bit more next time, but that is a question that comes up because some people have been taught, especially if you came out of an older dispensationalist background, that the kingdom of heaven related to one aspect of this kingdom as God's heavenly rule, and the kingdom of God was the earthly manifestation of that. And while, as I pointed out last time, there's a universal rule of God, and then there is, which, which, has, which is infinite, we'll review that in just a minute, there is also the the different instances of the, what's called by some the theocratic rule of God on the earth, the mediatorial kingdom on the earth, where there are specific times when God has a more direct rule within history. So this is uh, important to understand this, but he was drawing that distinction. And <clears throat> so I, I, I knew what I was going to say, but I wanted to go back and check it just to make sure. So I ran a search real quick through the... Uh, Bible on the kingdom of heaven. The term, the phrase kingdom of heaven is only used in the gospel of Matthew. If you compare those passages in the gospel of Matthew with the gospel of Luke and Mark and John, what you'll discover is that in the, in, in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. And when you have the same context, Jesus saying the same thing, and John the Baptist saying the same thing, uh, the, the other writers will put use the word phrase kingdom of God. So Jesus will say, repent. In Matthew, Matthew reports him as saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But in Mark, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, why is that? Did one of them make a mistake? No. I'll answer it in more detail later. But the simple answer is that Matt, who's Matthew writing to? That's right. Matthew is writing to Jews. How do Jews feel about the name of God? Oh, you, got, you don't just use the name of God very much. They'll write G hyphen D. They won't use the name of Yahweh. They'll substitute Hashem or Adonai, something like that. So Matthew's writing to Jews, so he doesn't want to use the name of God. So he substitutes heaven, which is the source of, which is the residence of God. And that also has certain significance because of how the kingdom is presented in relation to God as the ruler in heaven coming out of passages in Daniel 2 and Daniel 4 and Daniel 7. So Matthew uses this, this phrase, kingdom of heaven. The other writers use the term kingdom of God, but they're saying the same thing. There's not a distinction at all between those two terms. It just shows Matthew's sensitivities to his Jewish audience for why he's using the phrase kingdom of heaven. There's some other aspects to that as well. So don't get confused about that. Now, last time I began to talk about the fact that we have this universal, infinite, never-ending rule of God related to his sovereign rule as a creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And then we have these, these other references in Scripture that talk about a specific earthly temporal uh, kingdom. Three things we need to remember about a kingdom. You don't have a kingdom unless you have these three things. First of all, you have to have a king who rules. You have to have a king who rules. Without the king, you don't have a kingdom. 
So you have to have a king who rules. Secondly, there has to be a domain over which he rules. And the third, there has to be the exercise of ruling authority. That's the idea in kingdom, ultimately, is that there is a domain where the king's rule over his people is exercised. And so we have a king, a domain, and the exercise of ruling authority. Now, one of the reasons that uh, I keep emphasizing that we're not living in a kingdom is because Jesus isn't sitting on his throne. He, he, Revelation chapter 3 uh, 21, he's sitting on his father's throne. The kingdom isn't given to him until he comes to establish it. According to Daniel chapter 7, as the son of man, he is not given the kingdom until after uh, the judgments upon the earth. In fact, as we studied in, in the book of Revelation, it is the, the opening of those seals and those seal judgments that is the uh, act of the, of the king coming. It is when Jesus is the lamb who was slain, comes to take that seal, which is the title deed for his, for his ruling authority over the earth, that he comes to the earth to defeat the kings of the earth and to establish his kingdom. And so the tribulation period is at one level the purification of the earth as the king comes to uh, take dominion away uh, from man. And the domain over on that exercise of his authority isn't functioning right now. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's not exercising that that ruling dominion. So last time I just pointed out in this chart, we'll go through it fairly rapidly, that it, in com- comparing and contrasting the universal rule of God with the theocratic rule of God, the kingdom of God has always existed. And the kingdom of God, in terms of the theocratic or mediatorial uh, 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 reign, is the kingdom of God is a historical kingdom among mankind. Mediated, that term mediatorial, relates to it mediated through a designated agent. For example, Adam is created in the image and likeness of God. He is the agent through whom God is going to exercise his dominion authority over the earth. So that's a mediated kingdom. After the fall, that disappeared. We studied that last time. And again, it is established by Moses with Moses at Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. So you have a king, you have a constitution, you have a people, and they're headed to, the, to a land. So that is the reestablishment of a theocratic kingdom. The universal rule of God is uh, the, his kingdom is universal in terms of his sovereignty. He rules over all creation. But the kingdom of God in, a, in the mediatorial sense is located on the earth. It has a time-space limitation. The kingdom of God is God's direct rule on the earth. It's not an, I mean, the universal rule of God is God's direct rule over the earth, his providence. In the mediatorial reign, it's always mediated through an agent, whether that's Adam, Moses, or Israel, or the Lord Jesus Christ. In the universal rule, the kingdom of God is God's unconditional rule over all his creation, once again, related to his sovereignty and his providential care, and the theocratic rule operates within a covenant structure uh, between God and mankind. I charted it out this way, showing that the universal sovereign kingdom has no beginning and no end. God is eternal and infinite, and he always has authority over his creation. But within history, and here we have a timeline, there is a 
theocratic kingdom in Eden when God rules, the kingdom is mediated through Adam. After Sinai, it's mediated through Israel. We're in the mystery kingdom, the time of the mysteries, because the kingdom was offered by Jesus. It was rejected by Israel and postponed. And so those parables related to the mystery kingdom relates to what will take place in the period before the next theocratic kingdom is established, which is the millennial or messianic uh, kingdom. When that ends, we have new heavens and new earth, and we go into the eternal uh, theocratic kingdom. I pointed out last time the emphasis of dialectics on the thought of the kingdom. I switched it around so we would have the antithesis on the left this time and the thesis on the right. Uh, we'll work from right to left. How Hebrew of us. Thesis, the kingdom is now. Um, did I reverse those right? Yeah, the, the, did I, I thought I reversed those. The thesis is the kingdom is only future. That I didn't get that reverse. I know I got a phone call right in the middle of that. The kingdom is the thesis is the kingdom is only future. I'm going to change that right now so that doesn't show up again. But that over there, and that over there. Now we got it right. Okay. See how simple that was. The thesis is the kingdom is only future. This was the position of the early church, and then with the advent of allegorical interpretation. Uh, there's this move in the Middle Ages that the kingdom is an earthly kingdom. And it's not long before it is the church that rules it. That's why you have this conflict between the church and state in the Middle Ages. And the Pope is the head of the kingdom as the vicar of Christ. He's the head of the kingdom on the earth. And so the synthesis that comes out of this as it goes through history is the kingdom is both now and it's not yet. It is and it isn't. It's already and it's not yet. That's a big buzzword coming out of uh, really developed by George Eldon Ladd, uh, who was a theologian at Fuller Seminary in the 50s. This is at the core of, of progressive dispensationalism. And as one scholar wrote, who was not a dispensationalist, said, well, it's not progressive, it's not dispensational. Uh, Dr. Bruce Waltke, somebody asked me about this last week. I uh, they had read or heard someone make the statement that progressive dispensationalism was really uh, just a subtle form of covenant theology. Dr. Bruce Waltke was a legend at Dallas Seminary. When I was a student there, everybody just spoke of Dr. Waltke in hushed tones. One of these men who's just absolutely brilliant as a grammarian, I often... Uh, uh, relate that to a mechanic. Now, some people are just brilliant mechanics. They can fix anything, but they couldn't build anything if they had to. And that happens often. We find that we have these, in seminary education day, we have these specialists who are great language mechanics. They understand how language functions, but they can't think theologically at all. And Walkie was like that. Uh, he had photographic memory. When he got his second doctorate from Harvard, they offered him a full professorship, as I understand, uh, which is extremely rare. And then he left Dallas Seminary, went on to a, oddly enough, a Plymouth Brethren School up in Canada. And when he left there, he became a covenant theologian, taught at Westminster Seminary, and then I think uh, uh, Reform Seminary down in, uh, down in Jackson, uh, Mississippi, or uh, they have so many branches, I can't keep them all straight. Recently, he's best known because he got kicked off the faculty because he took a completely 
unacceptable view of creation. Uh, you would know Dr. Waltke's influence probably because one of uh, our, my favorite uh, uh, teaching assistants that he had back in 1965 and 66 was Charlie Clough. Charlie wrote his master's thesis under Waltke on the analysis of the uh, Genesis Flood, the, the book, The Genesis Flood, and its impact. And Waltke was never happy, as Charlie tells it, with his conclusions. Waltke always had problems with a literal Genesis and a literal flood, and he's just way out of bounds now. But that's what happened. He just migrated through almost every theological position over the last, what, 30 years or so, since he left Dallas. What's interesting is when he first read of this progressive dispensationalist position, by that time he was well entrenched within amillennial covenant theology, his comment was, those guys are amillennial and don't know it. Because they're coming along and they're taking passages then we'll talk about a couple of them in Acts as we go through. They're talking about taking certain passages and interpreting them related to the kingdom of God in Acts 3 and afterwards and, and interpreting in the same way that amillennial covenant theologians have interpreted them. And that was the problem is that in their minds, and I had um, one of the architects of progressive dispensationalism was Craig Blazing, who now teaches at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And um, I had... Him and at the time that he and Daryl Bach were fomenting, forming, forming uh, their theology, I had blazing in a dispensational uh, seminar, di seminar on dispensationalism, in the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary. So uh, they were really trying to go to find a middle ground between premillennialism, premillennial dispensationalism, and amillennialism so that everybody could come together and we could put our arms around each other and have a group hug and sing kumbaya in theological vocabulary. So that's what happens with this, this whole thing. That's why this is important. This has really seeped out to impact a lot of different areas of theology. So you look out on the horizon, you say, what in the world's going on? How did it get this way? Well, this is one of a number of different factors. Now, last time I looked at uh, kingdom prophecies in the Old, uh, I looked at the kingdom in the Old Testament. We started off with, uh, with its beginning in uh, Eden, worked our way through the call of Abraham as a precursor to the establishment of the next manifestation of a theocratic or mediatorial kingdom on the earth. I talked about Moses, the giving of the law at Sinai, and the establishment of a new theocratic kingdom with this new law code that God gave uh, to Moses at Sinai. The people who were redeemed by God, then they went to uh, the land that God had promised to Abraham, and they conquered it, defeated the Canaanites for the most part, began to compromise at the end, but they took the land and then uh, at the time of Samuel, the people rejected the rule, the direct rule of God. In a theocracy, God's the ruler. And they rejected that, and they said, Samuel, we want to have a king like everybody else. And it really irritated Samuel, and he took it personally. Preachers and prophets take rejection personally. Um, he took it personally and went to God to whine, and God said, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. So go back and tell them what they're going to 
what they're going to get for this. You have big government. You're going to have, have your taxes raised. You're going to have the king come along and, and draft all of your young men and send them off to war and all of these other things that are going to happen. In other words, you're going to start losing some of your freedoms. You can either have big government or a lot of freedom, but you can't have both. Big government is going to take away freedom. A lot of people don't understand. A lot of people do understand that. They just want to take away your freedom. So this led to the first king, which was Saul. And Saul was disobedient to God. He started off obedient. He was a believer. He had the kingdom taken from him because finally in discipline because of his disobedience to God. And God anointed, had uh, Samuel anoint David to be the king. There was another period of about 10, 15 years before David actually became the king when he had to go through a testing period and Saul persecuted him. The high point of the kingdom then was under David and his son Solomon. And it's at that point that God gave a covenant to David saying that it is through David's seed that God would establish an eternal kingdom. There would be an eternal house, an eternal dynasty, and an eternal throne, and a son of David would sit on that throne. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 7 through 14, emphasizes that Davidic covenant that is just as important as the Abrahamic covenant. It tells us that the ruler of that kingdom is going to be eternal, which means he's going to be God. It's a first hint that the Messiah that is promised in the Old Testament is going to be both God and man. And David understood that. At the end of 2 Samuel, he talks about how he wrote the Psalms, many of the Psalms, to prophesy about the coming Messiah and that he would be a king. So what I want to do tonight is look at the kingdom prophecies in the Old Testament. It was under David through some of the Psalms that we have some prophecies related to the coming Messiah. And then under uh, after Solomon with the split of the kingdom, you have the rise of various prophets, notably Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, but also Micah, Hosea, many other prophets that are in what we call the the minor prophets, what the Hebrew Bible calls the Twelve, and they prophesied about this future kingdom. And a lot of what is said in, in books like Micah, who was a contemporary of Isaiah, there was a lot of Messianic prophecy given by both Isaiah and Micah. And if you read them, there are passages in, in them that seem very, very similar. So... First point in this is we have to ask the question, how are we to interpret prophecy? That's a huge debate. Most of you know that. How do you interpret prophecy? One of the big buzzwords that you'll hear is the word apocalyptic. And it doesn't just refer to some sort of great future catastrophe, but it refers to a class of, of, of Jewish writings that were that, that that developed in the intertestamental period, the period between the closing of the Old Testament with with uh, Malachi, and uh, the beginning of the New Testament, the arrival of Jesus. So, you have um, this rise of this 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 literature, and what always seems to happen in Christian scholarly circles is they never assume that the Bible's first and then you have something else that's a degradation of it. They always seem to think that, oh, the Bible's just copying what's going on in these other other cultures. And so they degrade the Bible by doing that. And um, 
you never should refer to prophetic literature in the Bible by the term apocalyptic because apocalyptic was an apocryphal or a non-canonical class of Jewish writings, and there's all kinds of strange things that go on in apocryphal literature. And the characteristics of apocryphal literature are not the characteristics of Daniel, Zechariah, or even the book of Revelation. There are some things that might be similar, but that's only because the human-produced apocalyptic literature is just a, a bad copy, counterfeit uh, fraud of true prophetic literature. So we'll, we'll talk about prophetic literature, but you'll never hear me use the term apocalyptic literature unless I'm talking about that non-canonical class of literature. So when it comes to interpreting prophecy, we, there are three, basically three ways I'll talk about tonight people uh, interpret prophecy. The literal meaning, what we mean by the literal meaning, and, and dispensationalists, premillennialists constantly say this, and every time I read a critique of dispensationalism or premillennialism, uh, the theologians in the other camp always say, oh, they just have this wooden literalism. What do they do with a figure of speech? You know, they can't understand what we say. What we say is that literal interpretation means using language in its normal plain meaning. This includes the use of figures of speech, which would include metaphor, simile, uh, various symbols, as well as allegory, but we let the text tell us what that means. And all of those figures of speech are used within a normal structure and use of language. The golden rule of interpretation, uh, I first ran across this, I think David L. Cooper put this together, but I've seen so many people copy it and they don't attribute it that it's sort of entered into uh, standard use is the definition that when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. In other words, if the Bible says go down to the river, it doesn't mean climb the mountain. You have to take it in its literal sense unless there's some reason to do otherwise. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Just as a side note, one of the things that I was talking with my friend Tommy about this the other day for another reason, but in the book of Judges, you have the story about Jephthah's daughter. Jephthah made a vow to God that if God would give him victory over the um, enemy, the Amalekites or the Amorites, then the first thing that came out of his house to greet him when he came home, he would, he would offer as a burnt offering. And squeamish, queasy little evangelicals say, oh, he couldn't have killed his daughter. Yeah, he could. That's the whole point. You miss the point of the book. He's acting like a, most of the time these guys are acting like Canaanites. They're acting like pagans. They're, they don't know that much about the word. It's just that they trust God at key points, and for that God praises them in Hebrews 11. But what I get out of it is that they're real failures most of the time, and yet God honors them and, uh, in Hebrews 11 because a few times they trusted God, pretty much like the rest of us. So there's no reason in the text not to take it in its normal sense that he offered her as a burnt offering. So you take it in a normal sense, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literary, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. So here we have an example. 
This is a messianic text. Since we're studying the kingdom, I, I'm using this as an example. It says that he shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Now, you have a key word in verse 6. You have the word like. It's repeated in the second line. He shall come down to be the first line like rain upon the grass before mowing. The second line like showers that water the earth. That tells us it's a simile. A simile is a stated comparison using the word like or as. If you took like or as out, it would become a metaphor, which is an unstated comparison. So the literal part is he shall come down. That's what it's talking about. And then to help us picture what his arrival will be like, the writer uses a couple of figures of speech, a couple of comparisons, in order to help us understand the impact that will occur when the Messiah comes. When he comes, it will be like rain upon the grass before mowing. I could say it would be like rain on your backyard last Wednesday and Thursday when Houston finally got some rain and your brown grass turned green by Saturday. That's the idea. It's going gonna, it's gonna to feed, nourish the grass. It's going to, where there was something dead or barren, there's that which is going to come burst forth into uh, productivity and uh, there will be prosperity. So that's the picture. It will be like rain upon the grass before mowing. That's why it needs to be mowed is that it is, becomes well watered and it grows. Remember, Israel's a desert, dry, arid climate. So when it rains, just like the desert in Arizona or West Texas, New Mexico, when it rains, you go out the next day and all of a sudden all these uh, cactus plants out there, in, all these succulents out there in the desert have suddenly bloomed because they've gotten enough water to do that. So that's the picture, is something that is uh, produced. Excuse me a minute here. Okay. There. So it's something that's emphasizing productivity, that it his arrival, the arrival of the Messiah on the earth will be like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth, and the result is... Uh, productivity. It's an agricultural society. Now we're going to have fruit. We're going to have prosperity. We're going to have an income. Everything will be great. Then verse 7 says, in his days, the righteous shall flourish. It is the arrival of the Messiah that flourishes the grass. And so the righteous here, there's an unstated comparison between the righteous and the grass. They will flourish and there will be an abundance of peace. This is a result of his coming. Until the moon is no more. Remember, after the new heavens and new earth, there's no sun and there's no moon. And so this is talking about the extent of his kingdom. See, that is a literal interpretation that utilizes, recognizes the figures of speech, and that these figures of speech have a literal interpretation and a literal meaning, even though they are a non-literal structure. We know what these things mean. Then you also, that's the literal interpretation. Then we have non-literal interpretation. People who have spiritualized the text so that it doesn't, whatever it means literally is not relevant. That's not the message. It has a hidden meaning. It has a cryptic meaning. It has a, a spiritual meaning. 
For example, the Old Testament promises land to Abraham. In amillennial theology and in the theology of, uh, of in covenant theology, when Israel rejected the Messiah, God rejected Israel. And so those physical promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament are no longer going to be literally applied. Uh, the land now becomes heaven. And crossing the Jordan, which was a literal river that the Israelites literally crossed, crossing the Jordan into the promised land now becomes crossing from this life into the next. This is what uh, Stonewall Jackson is alluding to when he made his last statements about crossing over the river just before he died um, after the Battle of Chancellorsville. So God promised Abraham this land, but uh, in their view, this land is now not a physical land, but it actually means heaven. You think Abraham ever thought about that when God said, I'm going to give you a land that's going to be bordered by the Mediterranean and the Euphrates and the river of Egypt? And You think it ever entered into Abraham's mind that God was talking about heaven? No. So they, they really play flat. It plays fast and loose with the integrity of God. But then we have a combination or eclectic method, and this view sees two fulfillments. They'll say there's a near fulfillment that's not a full fulfillment. It's a partial fulfillment. And then there's a far fulfillment, two levels of fulfillment. Tommy and I have had a lot of discussions about this. And what we have seen in our study, uh, we agree with each other, which means we're right. Other people aren't quite so right. But what we see is as dispensationalism pulled itself out of a historicist interpretation, what historicism means is that up until dispensationalism, up until the mid-19th century, people looked around and went, oh, look at George III. He's the bad guy. He's the Antichrist. And so they would try to take events in Revelation or in prophecy and tag them to things that were going on that they were witnessing. So that in historicism, all the, this prophetic scenario in the Bible with the rise of the Antichrist and the return of Israel, all these things happened across the stage of time until Jesus would finally come and set up his kingdom. And you still see elements of that. You read people like um, Arno Gabelein. He, re he really spiritualizes and allegorizes a lot of text. And other dispensationalists of that generation do too. Uh, and, and, and what's happened, it's a progress of learning how to work out with a, in a consistent way what we mean by a literal interpretation, a consistent literal interpretation. And so uh, you'll find a number of, uh, most of these guys are passing off the scene now, men in their 70s and 80s and maybe a few that are even older who still had elements of some kind of historicism or non-literal interpretation, such as those who identified Babylon not as literal Babylon. Well, that's the revived Roman Empire, but we've studied that in Revelation. Babylon is literal Babylon. If Babylon doesn't mean literal Babylon in Revelation 17, then you have to just absolutely eviscerate your whole view of inter interpretation in the rest of Scripture because nowhere else in Scripture does Babylon not mean literal Babylon on the Euphrates River. So you have a, a Chafer, Walverd, a lot of men in that generation took Babylon to mean this is the revived Roman Empire. 
Well, you're either going to be consistently literal or you're going to be inconsistent and, and borrow elements. Hal Lindsey's another one. Uh, in dispensationalism, you cannot, there, there's no sign that it comes before the rapture to indicate the nearness of the tribulation. You read late great planet Earth, you were convinced Jesus was coming back before at the latest 2000. Oops. Historicism rears its ugly head. Happens a lot. Now, what we see in the Old Testament is that the kingdom is prophesied as a literal kingdom. It's not prophesied as a spiritual kingdom in the heavens. It is literal. It is earthly. It has physical uh, dimensions. Uh, let's look at a couple of things that it points out. There's talks, it shows that there's a literal king in this literal kingdom. Isaiah 33:17. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Now, when you look at how the word the land is used in the Old Testament, it always refers to that land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The kingdom is prophesied to have a spatial geographical dimension. Isaiah 14, 1 and 2, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel. Now, those terms have to have a historic meaning related to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the 12 tribes. The Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. Now, he doesn't mean heaven. Because nowhere would you get this just from reading the text. Settles them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them. That refers to Gentiles. And they will cling to the house. That is, the strangers will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take them and bring them to their place at the house of, and the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. That is the land God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It refers to the fact that the major block of citizens are Jewish. Jeremiah 23, 3 through 6, I will gather the remnant of my flock. Remnant in the Old Testament never refers to anyone but the, the believers, the believing block of Israel. Never used anywhere in the scripture of the church, never used of anywhere of any other group than the believing remnant of Israel. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. Look down to verse uh, uh, 23. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, referring to the Messiah. A king shall reign and prosper. So again, we see a literal king and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. It's earthly. It's not in heaven. Uh, verse 6, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. This is a Jewish kingdom in the land with a descendant of David on the throne. Not only that, but there's going to be a literal temple in this literal Jerusalem. Isaiah 2, verse 3, many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. That's the temple. He will teach us his ways. We shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem on the earth. There will be little nations that will be involved. 
And the people will be gathered from Assyria and Egypt, from Patros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. That's Greece. So these nations are literal nations. But there's some confusion here because in some passages the kingdom is spoken of, spoken of as being being close. It's near. It's, it's not far off. And then in other passages it's seen as being quite distant. Why do you think it's that way? Remember I talk about the legitimacy of the offer? It's close because it was legitimate. It, it, it could come at any moment. But it's far off because the Jews didn't accept it. So Haggai 2, 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more literally means it's in a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. Now, the next, one of the next points I'm going to make is that before the kingdom comes, there is this violence that occurs on the earth, earthquakes and, uh, and, and storms and meteor showers, and the sun is dark and the moon uh, turns to blood. All of these violent, extremely violent things must take place before the kingdom is established. And we've never seen anything like that in history. So that's what this shaking the heaven and the earth refers to. But the point here is simply in, in a little while. It's close. I will shake the nations they'll de- and the desire of the no- nations, etc. And then in Isaiah 29, se- 17, we have this same kind of phrase. Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? It's not long. But then we have these other passages that talk about it being far off. Now, see, what happens here is the liberals will come along and see the Bible's contradictory. These guys thought it was close, and those guys thought it was far off. There was really this debate going on between the prophets. No, you have to understand the Word of God. The Word of God emphasizes the nearness because there is going to be a legitimate offer not long. But on the other hand, there was a recognition that if that offer was rejected, then that kingdom would be postponed and it would not be near. It would be far off. Uh, Hosea 3, 4, and 5. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince. That's an allusion to today. Many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar. The the temple is down. Um, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. That hasn't happened yet. Isaiah 2, 2, now it shall come to pass in the latter days. See, the latter days of Israel, it's far off. Uh, several passages talk about these devastating judgments. These were too long to put up on the screen. Joel 3, 9 through 16, we've gone through that some. And Isaiah 3, 25 to 4, 1 talks about the fact that there will be these, these terrible worldwide judgments and catastrophes on the earth, wars, like none we have ever seen. Just think about that a little bit. Wars like none. The tribulation is said in both the Old Testament, when it talks about the time of J- Jacob's wrath and in Daniel, talks about the violence, the wars that occur will be like none, Daniel, I think it's at the end of Daniel 11, like none that have ever occurred before. Jesus said the same thing about the tribulation. A war, wars like none that have ever occurred before in human history. So this has to happen before the kingdom is established. So we can't be in the kingdom now. We can't be, um, we can't be trying to develop the kingdom through the influence of the social gospel. It's a physical, literal kingdom that comes only after great worldwide judgment catastrophe.
sixth point is that there will be a unique ruler in this future kingdom. Uh, the king is going to reign in righteousness. Now, there's never been a king in all of human history that has had a righteous administration. Not even close. You can't come up with one. Not uh, anybody with the great after their name, uh, especially not anybody with the terrible after their name. Ivan the Terrible, certainly. He never came close. But you know, there's, uh, the, the king will reign in righteousness. And princes will rule with justice. It's certainly not today. We don't have, it's a far cry to see anybody serving on a bench anywhere that executes any kind, anything close to justice, but that's because we live in a fallen world and can't change that. Isaiah 32, 2, a man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, rivers in a dry place. So this is talking about the future kingdom. Uh, he's going to be called the son of man, but he comes from heaven. Daniel seven thirteen and 14. I was watching in the night visions, Daniel says, Behold, one like the Son of Man. That's because he's going to be the God-man. He fully God, but fully man. The Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. This is one of those passages that, that leads to Matthew's use of the term kingdom of heaven. This is the Son of Man coming to establish his kingdom. He comes from heaven. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. And they brought him near before him. Then to him, at this point, to him, that is, to the Son of Man, God the Father, the Ancient of Days, it gives dominion and glory and a kingdom. It's not yet. It's future. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, the seventh point is that his government will be a benevolent monarchy. I hate to tell you this, but the best form of government isn't a republic. It's not a democratic republic. It's not even a Christian socialist democracy. It is a benevolent monarchy where the king is sinless. This is why the only perfect government will be the government that comes when the Messiah establishes his kingdom. Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah prophesied, For unto us a child is born. This refers to human birth. Unto us a son is given. Again, it reinforces humanity. Deity is not born. Humanity is born. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, okay, the one who's born is going to be called God. That tells you that he has two natures. He is divine, enters into human history as a child, and takes on true humanity. Everlasting Father, bad translation. In the Hebrew, it's Father of Eternity. It's talking about a characteristic he has. He's eternal. Even though he has a beginning in time, in his humanity, in his deity, he is eternal. And he is the Prince of Peace. This is the unique government of the kingdom. In Psalm 2.6, God announces about his anointed one, who's mentioned earlier in the uh, psalm in verse, verse 2. He says, God, the, God says of his anointed, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. It is prophetic. looks forward to the fact that there is a future kingdom with a future king and a future realm that is located in Jerusalem and in Israel. 
Daniel 7.14, I read just a minute ago. He will be given a dominion and a kingdom and glory, and all the peoples and nations will serve him. Isaiah 40, verses 10 through 11, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arms shall rule for him. That's using the term, the arm, as a metaphor for his right hand. Who sits at his right hand? The son. It's a messianic illusion there. His arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd, gather his lambs with his arm. It's a benevolent monarch. He takes care of his people. The extent of the kingdom is stated in a couple of passages. Zechariah 14.9 says he will be king over all the earth. Isaiah 9.7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. Not in heaven. It is an earthly kingdom on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And that's where he will reign. Now, the ninth point. The kingdom is spiritual only in the sense that it's related to spiritual rebirth and uh, the, uh, the role of the Holy Spirit, spiritual empowerment. Ezekiel 36, 24 to 28. God says he'll sprinkle them with clean water and they will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. Verse 26, Ezekiel 36, 26, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. See, there's a spiritual rebirth and that there is spiritual empowerment. Jeremiah 31, 33, in the the new covenant, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. What days? After those days of violence when he establishes the kingdom. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they uh, they shall be my people. And then, of course, Joel 2.28. This is the verse that, that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost because he's connecting what he's saying to the offer of the kingdom that is still on the table for Israel. Uh, Joel 2.28 said, It shall come a pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. But you know there's not only a geographical dimension in a spiritual dimension, there's a political dimension, and there's an economic dimension. Isaiah 65:21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build in another inhabit. See, 22 explains 21. They're not going to have communal living. They're going to build their own house, and they're going to live in their own house, private property. This isn't Christian socialism. It's not Marxist socialism. It's not any kind of socialism. It is the recognition that there's private property in the kingdom. Remember in, the, in those passages in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 40, chapter 40 through chapter 48, which talks about the new tribal allotments that will go to the 12 tribes of Israel in the, in the kingdom. There's a re, reassignment of property to the tribes of Israel. They were assigned property when they conquered the land in Joshua and they drew lots to establish those boundaries. But there's going to be, when the king comes, because the, 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 the land is almost destroyed in the wars leading up to the return of the king, that there's going to be a reapportionment and reestablishment of those boundaries so that they finally take and control all the real estate God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have never happened before. Now, listen. You won't get this too many places. 
Remember the last thing we studied in Acts 1? The church was meeting together, and they were holding all things in common, and they were selling their property, and they were... What did they... What, what was Peter's announcement in Acts 2.38? Repent, and let each of you be baptized for the, for the remission of your sins. And we saw that that terminology was the same terminology of John the Baptist and of Jesus. It's the offer of the kingdom. It comes right out of Deuteronomy 30, verse 2. So you offer the kingdom. Well, they expected the kingdom to come. What would happen when the Messiah came with his kingdom? He's going to be reassigning the property allotments for the tribes. Well, why do I need to keep a hold of all my property? The Lord's going to come back and establish a kingdom here before long. I don't need to keep onto this property because it's all going to get reassigned when the Messiah establishes kingdom. So why do I need to hold on to it? Let's all sell our property and share it together. It's their millennial expectation, the immediacy of that expectation that causes that. You don't see it at the end of Acts. You see it only in those early stages in Acts when there is this immediate expectancy that the Messiah is coming and he's going to establish his kingdom. In Isaiah uh, 35, 5 and 6, we see the fact that in the kingdom it will be a time of healing and long life. Uh, this is quoted in relation to Jesus. Isaiah 35, 5, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Streams in the desert, it's refreshing. That's like that first psalm we looked at. The, the Messiah will come like rain on the grass. Peter is going to use another term in Acts chapter 3. He will say, if you repent, the times of refreshing will come. That phrase, times of refreshing, comes out of these passages. It's talking about the kingdom uh, coming, and it's another offer of the kingdom. So Isaiah 33, 2 and 4, nobody will say, I'm sick. Uh, the people will not labor in vain. Uh, nor bring forth children for trouble. So it's going to be a time of health, a time of, of prosperity, all under the rule of the Messiah. So that's the Old Testament pro prophecy. There is a kingdom coming. This is what it's going to look like. There's going to be a literal king. He's going to be a descendant of uh, David. He's going to rule from Jerusalem. There's going to be a new temple. All the world will come to that. That's what they were expecting, so that when John the Baptist came along and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near... He didn't have to define what he meant by the kingdom. Nowhere in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John does he ever define the kingdom because the people knew what he was talking about from what I just taught you. Jesus came along right after him and said, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He doesn't explain it any differently. If they meant something other than the literal geographical kingdom of Israel and Judah, then they would have had to redefine it, but they never did. They're not talking about the United States of America. They're not talking about a social gospel kingdom. They're not talking about anything other than what Moses had promised, what Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, what all of them had promised. And so we can't get away from that foundation of the old. That's our anchor to understand this term. Remember, Ideas have consequences. Ideas are expressed in words. Misunderstand the words, you'll misunderstand the ideas. Bad ideas have bad consequences. Good ideas have good consequences. When you distort the ideas of Scripture into bad ideas, 
you have bad consequences. So we have to make sure we accurately understand it. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and come to a better understanding of what you predicted in the Old Testament, what is yet to be fulfilled, what will come when Jesus returns, because first he had to come at the cross, he had to come and suffer and die for the sins of the world, because all we like sheep have gone astray, everyone turned to his own way, but you laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then Jesus will return and get with the crown and establish the kingdom. Father, we pray that you would... Help us to understand all of this, have a better understanding of your word, your plan in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.